The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture reading for today is Psalms 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among nations, among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the word of God. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open to Psalm 67. Uh, When we began our series through the Psalms, all the way back in Psalm 1, we saw that the purpose of the Psalter is to plant us by the stream of God's Word. Specifically, the purpose of the Psalter we saw is to plant us in God's promises. We saw that clearly through Psalm 2. Psalm 2 gave us this summary vision of the promises of God that we encounter in the Psalter. The promise of the Psalter is that God is king. Remember Psalm 2 starts in verse 1. Why do the nations rage as if they're in charge of something? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Psalms hold forth the promise that God is king right now. And they hold forth the promise that God is coming. God is king And God is coming. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 8 promises that He will come to rule and reign forever. He will do that, fulfill that, through the sending of His Messiah, His King who will inherit the nations. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 8 promises us. So, as we have been journeying through all sorts of psalms, through psalms of uh, thanksgiving, psalms of lament, psalms of confidence, psalm of confession, as we've been journeying through all of those psalms, the Psalter has been meeting us wherever we are and moving us to plant us in the stream of God's promise. That no matter what it looks like in our life, no matter if we're lamenting, no matter if we're in the midst of praising, no matter what it looks like in our life, He is King and He is coming. We have been experiencing the purpose and the promise of the psalms. And I pray that is causing us to notice a third thing. I pray and I hope that at this point we're beginning to see not just the purpose of the Psalms, not just the promise of the Psalms, I pray that we're also beginning to see their center. I'm sorry, it's not another P. I tried, I failed. Pray that we're beginning to see the center of the Psalms. The purpose and the promise of of the Psalms show us the center of the Psalms, namely the gospel. I hope we're beginning to see the gospel-centered Psalter. This, this is what I mean. I said just a moment ago that the Psalms meet us wherever we are. You're in lament, they'll meet you in lament. You're in praise, they'll meet you in pra- Wherever you are in your life, they'll meet you there. But then they move us by planting us in God's promises. They move us from where we are to being centered on the gospel good news that he is king and he is coming. Is that not the good news of the gospel? 
That God rules and reigns through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, and through his resurrection, he is seated at the right hand of his father, ruling and reigning, and he is coming. That's the gospel, and it's the center of the Psalter. Whether we are lamenting, praising, mourning, rejoicing, the Psalms meet us there and move us, center us on God and his good news. They center each of us on the gospel personally, but they don't stop there. They move us further still. They move us to share this gospel missionally. We tend, when we encounter the Psalms, we tend to think of the Psalms as very personal, and they are. But have you been noticing as we've been going along that the Psalms, though very personal, they move us beyond the personal consistently, and they get missional. Think think just about last week psalm 51 david's prayer of confession you can't get to a more personal prayer than this and what happened in around verse 15 of psalm psalm 51 we saw david's personal prayer get missional david was praying longing to experience uh, longing to experience forgiveness verse 15 says so that then he may teach others the way of god's forgiveness he may share the good news that there is forgiveness found with God, what's personal gets missional. Just just think about the fact that all of the Psalms, all of them, even the ones that don't feel like they have a missional word in them at all, all of the Psalms were written as a means of bearing witness to others about what God is doing in someone's life. Each psalmist composed the psalm as worship, as a means by which they can express who God is and how God has been working in their life. Many of the psalms were even designed to be sung by individuals in the midst of the congregation during times of worship as a way of bearing witness, this is what God is doing and I am worshiping Him as a result. And it called the congregation to join in that worship. This is what the entire Psalter is meant to do as a whole. The entire Psalter concludes with such a call. Psalm 150 concludes, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It's the trajectory of the entire Psalter. Shades, the Psalms are personal, but I hope and pray that we're beginning to see that they are also missional, and that's because they are gospel-centered. This is a gospel-centered Psalter, are we planted in it so that we are becoming a gospel-centered people? Here's my concern. Here's why I want to hit this emphasis and hit it hard today. We can often use the Psalms inappropriately to completely turn inward upon ourselves. It's one of the reasons that we really like the Psalms because of how personal they get. And that is a good and a right usage. We should use the Psalms to break open our hearts, but the Psalms never leave us there. They meet us there and they move us to being centered on the gospel. Are the Psalms, are we planting ourselves in them so that the gospel-centered Psalter is making us into a gospel-centered people do our prayers have a habit of moving beyond the personal to become missional is our worship more than just about an individualized experience is our worship about bearing witness is one of the reasons you come here to bear witness to your brothers and sisters around you of who god is and what he's done in your life so that they may be encouraged it's one of the reasons you come here so that you might sing and bear witness to the world to birmingham and beyond that this is the God that you 
you worship shades if we plant ourselves in the purpose and promise of the psalms it will it will move us toward the center of the psalms the gospel the gospel-centered psalter will make us a gospel-centered people how psalm 67 shows us three ways number one how does the gospel-centered Psalter make us a gospel-centered people? Number one, the Psalter keeps us centered on the God of the gospel. The Psalter, if we pray this, if we, if we use the Psalms to shape our prayers, this is what it does. It keeps us centered on the God of the gospel. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us. All right. If we stop right there, this sounds like the average prayer that most people pray. Or at least, this sounds like the average prayer that I pray. Lord, bless me. Like, like those three words summarize the essence of most prayers. I mean, you can fill in the blank with whatever the blessing is, whether we want to be blessed with health or healing or reconciled relationships, safe travel, job opportunities, like whatever in essence, in most of my prayers, I'm asking for God to bless me. My prayers, I don't know about yours, but mine typically center on me. Like God is the great vending machine in the sky. And if I'll just put in my correct prayer coinage, I'll get the blessing that I want. And if I don't, I kick the machine. It's not doing what I think it's supposed to do. Is this how the psalmist is praying right here? I don't think so. Because, yes, the psalmist does pray to be blessed, but that's not all he prays. The psalmist goes further to tell us how he wants to be blessed by God and why he wants to be blessed by God. And both of those things center this prayer not on the psalmist, but on God. How? How does the psalmist say he wants God to bless him? He prays, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. This is not three separate requests right here. They're one request. It just keeps getting more explicit. God, show your grace towards us. How? By blessing us. How? Make your face to shine upon us. That's a Hebrew phrase that is a prayer for God's presence. God, give us you we don't deserve it this is your grace it's your favor it's your blessing make your face shine upon us be give us you the psalmist is praying for god's presence he wants god more than anything else because the psalmist knows there's nothing greater than god himself god is the greatest blessing that truth had been spoken over the psalmist most likely throughout his entire life. In Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 and 26, we read a blessing that the high priest was supposed to consistently speak over the people of Israel to drill into their hearts and into their heads what true blessing is. This is the blessing, number 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. His presence, him Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.
peace. Does all this sound familiar? Like the psalmist has literally lifted these words from number six and turned them into his prayer in Psalm 67. This is the blessing that he wants. He wants God. It's not, it's not that he doesn't pray for other blessings. I mean, we can find prayers for other blessings all throughout the Psalter. It's not that he doesn't pray for blessings like health or blessings like healing or provision. As a matter of fact, in this psalm, verse 6, we're going to get there, but verse 6 actually indicates that this entire psalm is likely a prayer offered at harvest time when the earth has yielded its increase. This prayer is partly, it's partly a thanksgiving for a bountiful harvest. But verse 1 shows us that there is a blessing greater than a bountiful harvest. God. That truth is echoed all throughout Scripture. My favorite, most explicit place is in Habakkuk 3, 17 to 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is what's going on in the heart of the psalmist. Is this what goes on in our hearts? Like in, in our prayers. Shades, it's okay. It is totally okay to pray for God's provision. But is our deepest prayer, in provision or lack, is our deepest prayer, I want you. Like in other words, if I could choose between every provision ever without having you or i could choose lacking everything but i still get you i want you i lack it all i want you that's how moses prayed in exodus 33 when god promised to give him and the israelites the promised land everything he'd ever promised except for his presence moses said lord if your presence will not go with us do not lead us up from this place we will die in the desert as long as we get you she said, it's okay to pray for healing. It's okay. But is our deepest prayer, like healing or sickness, I want you. That's how Paul prayed. In, in 2 Corinthians 12, when he had his thorn in the side, that we don't know what in the world that was. It could have been some sort of physical ailment. That's what a lot of scholars tend to think. And Paul prays three times for the Lord to take it away. And God says, no, I'm going to leave it there and my grace will be sufficient for you. My power will be made perfect in your weakness. I will be present. I will sustain you through it all. And Paul says, all right then, I'm going to boast in that thorn. Because I want you more than I want it removed. Give me more of you. Shades, it's okay to pray for our needs. But our deepest need is God. This is how Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's what I want above everything. Your name glorified, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yes, it's okay to pray, give us this day our daily bread, but I want that prayer to serve this greater purpose, your name being hallowed. So it's okay to pray, lead me not into temptation, protect me, provide. I want all of that to serve the purpose of your kingdom coming, your will being done on earth. This is my greatest 
need. It's okay to pray for our needs, but our deepest need is God. He is the good news. God is the gospel. The best that we could have. This is how the Psalms teach us to pray. They center us on the God of the gospel. Psalm 42 and verse 2, my soul thirsts for God. Psalm 63 and verse 3, your steadfast love is better than life. Psalm 73 and verse 25, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Line it up. I I can have it all or I I choose you every single time. And this is how the psalmist prays for blessing in Psalm 67, by centering on the God of the gospel. Why? This is how he prays to be blessed. But why does he pray this way? He's glad we asked. Look at verse 2. That, it's a causal connection. So that, praying for your blessing, give me your presence. Why? So that your way may be known on the earth. Your saving power among all nations. Why does the psalmist pray for God as his greatest blessing? So that the world may see God is the greatest blessing. He prays for God to be his greatest treasure so that the world may see in his life God is the greatest treasure. Let me treasure you above all so that that's what the world sees. You're the greatest treasure. He prays to experience grace that he might proclaim grace. He prays to know God so that he might make God known. This is what we all do with whatever we treasure. This is why social media is a thing. But, but because people take whatever they treasure and they want to show it to everybody. And they want you to treasure it too. Double tap that thing. I treasure it. Why don't you like it? We are insanely evangelistic creatures. Just not with Jesus. More with like whatever we're eating for dinner. Check this out. You like it too. We all do this with whatever we treasure. We, it's not enough to just experience the joy of what we treasure. We love to share it. Somehow that increases the joy. Like joy is incomplete until it's shared. We all know that deep down in our bones. I remember uh, this one time Asher was two. On a Saturday morning, he came into uh, mine and Holly's bedroom and he woke his mother up. Why he would take his own life into his hands like that, I do not know. But he did. And the re- I actually do know why. The reason he did is because he couldn't wait to share the joy of what he'd found. He'd gone into the pantry and located a sucker. And he had it in his mouth and he wakes mom up and he, or Holly up and he goes, Mama, look, a sucker as if like this made a perfectly great breakfast. I, if he just hid, he could have eaten the whole thing. But of course, his, his mother like immediately pops that thing out of his mouth and is like, you can't have a sucker for breakfast? Don't worry. On Saturdays, we give our kids sugary cereal. It's called Saturday cereal. She's not like a horrible mother. I, I told her, I was like, I will definitely tell them that you gave him I had permission to share this. You gave him Saturday cereal. You're a great mom. She's a great mom because she popped the sucker out of his mouth too. But he came and told her because he couldn't help himself. His joy had to be 
shared, joy is incomplete until it's shared. 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. John says, we are writing these things to you. Here's why I'm writing. Here's why I'm sharing what I'm sharing. We're writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. We've got joy about this good news of the gospel. And we're sharing it with you because it's incomplete until it's shared. Shades, I will never attempt to guilt you into sharing the gospel. I will always aim to joy you into it. I want God to be your and my joy to the point that it builds up and bubbles over to the point that we can't help but share it. That's what we're seeing in Psalm 67. The psalmist prays for the greatest joy, knowing God. And he prays for the completion of that joy, making God known. This is the gospel-centered Psalter. And this is how it makes us a gospel-centered people. The Psalter centers us on the God of the gospel so that he becomes our joy. That joy is not complete until it's shared. Psalm 22, verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Psalm 66, 16. Come and hear. I will tell of what God has done for my soul. Psalm 96, verses 2 and 3. Tell of the Lord's salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. And on and on and on the gospel-centered Psalter goes. Shades, this is how, this is how the gospel-centered Psalter makes us a gospel-centered people. It keeps us centered on the God of the gospel. Number two, number two, the Psalter keeps us centered on the goal of the gospel. How's it going to make us a gospel-centered people? It keeps us centered on the goal of the gospel. Look at verses three through five. Uh, this, uh, this psalm is actually in a chiastic structure. If you remember from Revelation, that means that it walks forward and then walks backward in, in pieces that kind of the outer pieces match. And then the next level matches and the next level matches so that it gets to this emphasized middle. Verses 3 through 5 are the emphasized middle. The intro and the outro match. And this is the center of the psalmist's prayer. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So Asher shared the discovery of the sucker with Holly with the goal that she would join in his joy. He suffered persecution instead. But this is the aim of the psalmist as well. He prays to know God as his greatest treasure and joy so that the world will see and embrace God as their greatest treasure and joy. He prays for the world to join in his joy, to join in his worship. Worship, joy, is on, the, is on both sides of mission. I just told you earlier, I'll never try to guilt you into sharing the gospel. I want to joy you into it. 
Joy is on the front side of mission. It's what motivates mission. We can't help. Joy isn't complete until it's shared. And joy is the aim of mission. We want people to come to know joy in God. Joy, worship, it's what motivates mission. It's what is the goal of mission. It's on both sides of it. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That's the goal of the gospel. Joy in God among all peoples and all nations. We want people to see the glory of God so that he becomes their joy. That's exactly the logic of the psalmist in verse 4. Did you see it? God will become people's joy when they see and behold his glory. That's exactly how he argues. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For, here's why they're going to be glad. Here's what's going to cause them to have joy in God. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. They'll be glad and they sing for joy when they see the glory of who you are. The righteous, sovereign ruler over all. That's what he's saying right here. When the psalmist says, you judge, don't, don't think with the word judge there, don't think like condemn, condemnation, that the Hebrew right here means govern, rule. You govern the peoples with equity, righteousness, fairness. This world has never seen such a ruler. One who governs, rules with perfect righteousness. But the psalmist says, Lord, you do. You guide the nations upon the earth. You're sovereignly ruling over all things right now and you will bring all things to their good appointed end. And if the world sees this, that you are the sovereign ruler over all and that you're good and you're leading it all to a good and perfect conclusion. If they see this, they will rejoice to know that history is in your hands. Shades, could our world use some good news like this right about now? Like when you look around the world, do you see much in the way of righteous rulers who guide the nations in righteousness? Do you see much in the way of hope? The world doesn't just listen to them talk or tweet. People feel pretty hopeless and we have a gospel of good news. Good news of a righteous God who reigns and one day that reign will come in full. Many scholars think that this prayer right here in verses 3 through 5, that it's pointing us forward, that this is showing us the hope of the psalmist for the day that will come when God will bring his rule and reign and righteously, perfectly, forever. But here's the deal, Shades. Even now we have good news that this God is righteously reigning. Even right now. No matter what things look like right now. And I know, I know you've got to be thinking like Jonathan have you even taken a small glance around the world I mean one of the number one objections to our faith is how can you believe that there is a God who's sovereign over all this that's happening and yet he's also good and loving and shades here's the deal I do believe that I do believe the promise of Romans 8 28 that a sovereign God is working all of this, all of these things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I do believe Psalm chapter 2 that tells me even though the nations rage and they plot, all those plots are in vain for our God is sovereign over them all. He sits, rules in the heavens and he laughs. I do believe Psalm 115 that says our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. 
Jesus. I believe Proverbs 21 and verse 1. The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. I believe nobody rules this world but God. No matter what things look like, I believe that we have good news that our sovereign, good God reigns, and therefore we can rejoice and be glad, for he wins. He's the king, and he's coming. How? How can I believe all that? I believe it because of the cross. Believe it because of the cross. You, you want to talk about a place where it looked like unrighteous rulers were reigning. You, you want to talk about a place where it looked like God wasn't guiding. You want to talk about a place that looked utterly hopeless, like there was no hope, then let's talk about the cross. The cross where unrighteous rulers weren't reigning. No, God was governing. Isaiah 53 and verse 10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You may think it looks like God was not guiding, but the sovereign God was guiding every single nail into place at the cross. That's what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, that everything that happened there happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He was guiding it all. The cross where you may think that everything looks hopeless is where the sovereign God showed us his goodness and gave hope to the world. He gave it by sending his son to die in our place for our sin that his son might bring us back to him. The cross is specifically where Psalm 67 verse 2 is most fully displayed. God's way being made known on the earth. His saving power among all nations. You want to know God's way? This is God's way. This is where he's made it known. Jesus Christ crucified is the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through him you want to know god's saving power this is god's saving power at the precise moment when it looked like wickedness had won and everything was hopeless god won this is his saving power how do i know that god is sovereignly ruling and reigning over our world and will bring it to a perfect good conclusion i know that because he did it there cross it's the darkest place we've ever seen. And he did it there. He will do it everywhere. An empty tomb guarantees that. Christ's resurrection, the reversal of his death, it guarantees the reversal of all death, sin, and the curse itself. Do you think our world could use such gospel good news that no matter what it looks like, there's a sovereign good God governing and guiding all things to his appointed ends shades. We've got that good news. We get to respond to the raging of the nations, not by returning their rage. People rage when they feel like the world is out of control. We are not a people who feel that the world is out of control because we know the one who reigns and who is in control. Which means that we get to respond to their raging with rejoicing and inviting them to join in it. Is that not the consistent response of the church all throughout Acts? When the world rages against them, how do they respond? With rejoicing. And they invite the world to join them 
You want to see it most explicitly? Just go to Acts 16. Paul and Silas are unjustly arrested and beaten and thrown in prison. And how do they respond to all that rage? They rejoice. Before it's all said and done, the jailer joins them. Shades, there are a lot of Christians right now responding to rage with rage. That is not a Christian response. We respond with humble, self-sacrificial rejoicing that invites the very people who are raging into that rejoicing. That shows the truth and the validity of the gospel because it looks like Jesus. This is how Jesus responded to those who raged against him. And it's how his church responds. We call the nations from their raging to rejoicing. We call them to worship the one who is reigning. We sang about him earlier. In a song rooted in Revelation 5, saying of Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain and yet still stands. So he is worthy to take the scroll, the scroll of God's plan, unroll it, read it, complete it. Revelation 5 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall, guaranteed, sovereignly, they shall reign on the earth. In other words, Jesus is the sovereign, good, and loving king, and he is coming to claim the bride for which he died. And his bride, his church from every nation will have him as their joy forever. So we go to the nations with this good news. You don't have to rage. You can rejoice. We tell the nations you can be glad. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's the goal of the gospel. The nations give God as their joy. And this is how, Shades, this is how the gospel-centered Psalter makes us a gospel-centered people. It keeps us centered on the goal of the gospel, the nations rejoicing in God. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Psalm 45, 17, nations will praise you forever and ever. Psalm 117 and verse 1, praise the Lord all nations. Psalm 150 and verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And on and on and on the gospel-centered Psalter goes. Shades, this is how the gospel-centered Psalter makes us a gospel-centered people. It keeps us centered on the goal of the gospel. Third and final How's the gospel-centered Psalter make us a gospel-centered people? Number three, the Psalter keeps us centered on the guarantee of the gospel. The Psalter keeps us centered on the guarantee of the gospel. Look at verses six and seven. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. But all the ends of the earth fear Earlier, I told you that the psalm is partly a thanksgiving for the harvest, and we see that right here in verse 6. But notice the logic of the psalmist. The earth has yielded its increase. In other words, 
He looks at the harvest that they've just received. This is a gracious gift, a blessing from God that He didn't have to give to them. And the psalmist looks at that harvest, at that concrete evidence, tangible, tasteable evidence of God's graciousness towards him. And what does he conclude? God will continue to be gracious. Do you see his logic? God has been faithful. And so I conclude, I see that right here in front of me in this harvest. God has been faithful. And so I conclude he will continue to be faithful. Even when there's not a harvest. He says the earth has yielded its increase. That's what he's done, and this is what it makes me know. God, our God, shall in the future. He has blessed us, and so he will keep doing it. He has been faithful, he'll keep being faithful. God shall bless us. God shall bless us. He says it twice. And he doesn't necessarily mean God will continue to give them a harvest year after year. He's not that naive. He knows that there are lean years. So what does he mean that God will continue to keep on blessing us, being gracious towards us? I think he means what he prayed all the way back up in verse 1 because these verses parallel it. I think he means God will continue to bless us by continuing to make his face to shine upon us. God will bless us by keep, he'll keep on giving us himself. Harvest or no harvest, like Habakkuk said. He'll give us himself. Our God's good. He's sovereign. He governs with equity. He guides the earth. He will graciously bless us and give us him. That is the guarantee of the gospel. Harvest or no harvest, I get God. Health or no health, I get God. Kids, no kids, I get God. Marriage, no marriage, I get God. That's the guarantee of the gospel. And if this psalmist can look at the first fruits of his harvest, first fruits is just a term for the first of the ripening of the harvest. It, It was like a promise. The rest is coming. Here's the first fruits. The rest are coming. If this psalmist can look at the first fruits of the harvest and believe God has been faithful, he will be faithful. God will give him, give us himself. Then surely we can look at our first fruits, Christ risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 calls the resurrected Christ the first fruits of those risen from the dead, meaning there is more resurrection coming, namely yours, ours, and all of creation. Surely we can likewise look at our first fruits, the resurrected Christ, and believe that his empty tomb guarantees God will give us himself no matter what even when we are staring down the leanest year of our life, even when we are staring down entering our own tomb, we can know that that's only a temporary destination. For just as Christ rose as the first fruits, the day of the great and final harvest will come when God will call us out of the grave to live with him as our full and forever joy. That's the guarantee of the gospel. And if that is guaranteed, Shades, then it sets us free. Right now, it sets us free to live our lives on mission. If you are guaranteed to get your greatest good forever, then you are free right now to live your life and to risk everything for the sake of this mission. For the sake of the world, knowing joy and the glory of God. That's what the psalmist concludes. Look at verse 7. One last time, God shall bless us. In other words, I've got guaranteed good news. I'm going to get God forever. So what's his conclusion? God shall bless us, let all the ends of the earth fear him. Psalmist believes he's got a guarantee. 
He gets God. Nothing can take that away so he can give his life away to make his greatest treasure known. It's the aim of the entire prayer. The aim of the entire prayer is that God would use every single blessing he ever pours out upon his people to make his glory known to the ends of the earth. Bless us so that you may be known. The, the prayer is for God to bless His people with His presence, yes, but it's also a prayer for any other blessing that God ever gives to be used to make Him known. Like this harvest right here at the end of the psalm. God, You've blessed us with this harvest. The earth has yielded its increase. So what's my conclusion? Let's use it to make the ends of the earth know You. Is this our conclusion about the blessings of God with every blessing that we receive? If we receive financial blessing as... Is our conclusion, Lord, let me use this to make you known. If we receive the blessing of a house and a home, is our conclusion, Lord, let me use this to make you known. The blessing of a marriage, Lord, let me use this to make you known. The blessing of singleness, Lord, let me use this to make you known. Blessing of a job, of education, of health, whatever, Lord, let me use it all to make you known. And above all, through it all, let me show that you are the greatest treasure, the greatest blessing I have. Even if I lose all of those other blessings I just listed, let me hold on to you as my treasure so the world may see you're the greatest treasure that there is. Shades, we can live this way because of the guarantee of the gospel. We get God forever as our joy so we can risk everything for the joy of the nations because in the end we risk nothing to live as christ to die gain living and dying i get him i win because he has won this is how the gospel-centered psalter makes us a gospel-centered people it keeps us centered on this guarantee, the guarantee of the gospel. We get God. Psalm 16, 10 and 11. God, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave. No, in your presence is fullness of joy. Your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We get God. Psalm 23, 6. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We get God. Psalm 27, 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And on and on and on the gospel-centered Psalter goes. Shades. This is how the gospel-centered Psalter makes us a gospel-centered people. It keeps us centered on the goal of the goal, the guarantee of the gospel we get so, let's be a people shaped by the gospel-centered Psalter. Let's, let's pray like this, give our lives away like this, go to the nations like this. Let's be a people planted in the promise of the Psalter. God is ruling and reigning and our God is coming. Maybe the purpose of the Psalms. Plant us in the promise of the Psalms so that it moves us to the center of the Psalms. To the Gospel. Let's pray. So Father, I, 
pray that you would make us a people who pray like Psalm 67. That above all that we, would, that we request, that we would ask that in and through it all, what we want most is you. Give us yourself as our joy so that we might show the world you are our greatest joy. Let us pray centered on you, the God of the gospel. Lord, I ask that you would make us a people who give, who give of every blessing that you ever pour out on us. May we use it so that the world may know joy in your son, Jesus. Let us give our lives to be centered on the goal of the gospel, the nations knowing joy in your son.